Hello and welcome to The History of Now, a podcast run from the history faculty of the University of Cambridge, or more precisely, from a locked down living room just north of the River Cam. This sequence of podcasts is about how the past can help us to think about the present. And right now, we're running a series of episodes on issues related to the crisis triggered by the current COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Chris Clark, and my conversation partner today is the British Sri Lankan historian Sujit Sivasundaram, Professor of World History at the University of Cambridge and a fellow of Gonvalin Keyes College. Sujit is a specialist in the history of the Indian and Pacific Oceans in the 18th and 19th centuries, especially South and Southeast Asia and Polynesia, and he's the author of, among many other things, Nature and the Godly Empire, Science and Evangelical Mission in the Pacific, 1795 to 1850, which came out with Cambridge University Press in 2005, and Islanded, Britain, Sri Lanka, and the Bounds of an Indian Ocean Colony, which came out with University of Chicago Press in 2013. And Sujit's book, Waves Across the South, A New History of Revolution and Empire, will come out this summer with HarperCollins. Sujit, the science has, the the science, well, the science, as we're now accustomed to saying, and the scientists who tell us about the science, who mediate the science, have returned to our news bulletins, returned to the center of our attention. We see political leaders flanked by phalanxes of epidemiologists, medics, and scientific advisors. And I find myself thinking of the words of the Canadian comedian John Lajoie, or Lajoie, I'm not sure how one translates it, uh, pronounces it, whose coronavirus rap went viral on Twitter, and which has a, a refrain which goes, goes approximately like this. Thank God for the mother freaking nerds right now. Thank God for the mother freaking nerds. I mean, I'm obviously <laughs> deleting some expletives there. When your villain is a virus, you don't need Avengers. What you need are a ton of very educated nerds. And so, in a sense, what what Lajoie is saying is, you know, that the, the the age of disillusionment with the expert is over, and nerds and geeks and experts are once again um, the sort of uh, celebrated heroes of public life. Well, the relationship between political power and scientific knowledge has changed over time, and this has been one of the themes in the conversations we've been having. Chris Briggs talked about how uh, Italian. The Italian encounter with uh, the Black Death, with the bubonic plague in the in the Middle Ages, produced numerous medical treatises, whereas the British one didn't, uh, because there were no um, medics, there were no doctors at uh, medical doctors at British universities. Nuket Varluk, the the um, the a Turkish American scholar, told us about how in the Ottoman Empire the knowledge of plague was largely captured in what we would call religious texts. Um, and Gary Gerstel uh, told us about the changeful relationship between the White House and the agencies entrusted with the scientific management of epidemic disease. Are you happy, Sujit, with how science is currently framing the issues that arise around this virus? So first, hello, Chris. Um, thank you very much for having me um, on this podcast. And um, hello from a lockdown house uh, south of the river, but effectively, Um, equivalent to being in another universe, possibly, because uh, it's equivalent to being on the other side of the world at the moment. Um, And uh, yeah, certainly, I mean, I've noticed the rise of uh, the expert uh, on our screens uh, and in our news bulletins, um, but not as much uh, the historian. And this is something I've been thinking about, um, because I think where the historian has commented 
uh, on COVID-19, including uh, in your wonderful podcasts, it has often been the case uh, that people have provided parallels from the past, other epidemics uh, from the past and how they've been handled or how humans in particular have experienced uh, those epidemics. Uh, and so in a sense, the role of the historian has been somewhat constrained, I think, uh, to this um, provision of lessons uh, and parallels. Uh, and what I would like to see is a much wider role uh, for the historian uh, in the midst of the pandemic, uh, which allows the historian to actually work with COVID-19 itself uh, and to track its history uh, and prehistory. Um, and here I have in mind uh, a kind of environmental history uh, which can speak uh, to the epidemic uh, that we're facing now. So certainly I don't want to take away uh, from the histories of um, um, the past parallels uh, to COVID-19 because I think they have a role to play. But I think, um, in fact, uh, we can join in with our scientific colleagues uh, in explaining uh, in a more fundamental way, uh, given uh, our, our present situation. I woke up this morning uh, to this headline, the UK believes that disease behind pandemic was passed from animals naturally. So I think there has been um, certainly a politicization of the mechanisms uh, of the transfer of COVID-19 uh, as President Trump, for instance, tries to pass the blame onto the Virology Institute uh, in Wuhan and to suggest that it came from a lab uh, rather than from an animal. So I think personally, uh, Thinking about the relationship between humans and animals, for instance, which historians are, are very good at doing, can be one route through which we can um, critique uh, and intervene uh, in this politicized narrative of blame uh, surrounding uh, COVID-19. So, yes, I mean, in that in that case, we, we're looking at a kind of um, highly politicized um, narrative on the one hand, where the where the virus is the consequence in some sense of human agency or of human blunder, at least in a human inadvertent human agency. And on the other hand, where it's a, a consequence of interactions between humans and a natural environment, humans and animals. Um, and, you know, when uh, scientists refer to these transfers of, of disease from animal populations to human ones as zoonotic disease transfers, is there a history of this kind of zoonotic disease spillover that we should be interested in? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, certainly with the, the, the Trump kind of view of the disease, it's much easier to pass on blame if it arose from a, a human context, like a lab. Um, but I think that even if it did arise uh, from an animal population, and that certainly is uh, very likely, um, then it is going to be the case that we will pass on blame uh, to the animals, the particular creatures uh, that gave rise uh, to this disease uh, when we have further certainty uh, about this. Uh, I mean, the literature on zo zoonotic uh, disease transfer uh, is huge. I've been reading some of the science papers uh, that have come out recently. One, for instance, published uh, in the Proceedings of the Royal Society uh, in the last few weeks by Christine Johnson, says that these transfers happen all the time from animals. Uh, to humans. In fact, uh, they uh, consist of the majority of diseases facing humanity uh, today. Uh, but these spillovers are very hard to detect on the part of scientists. And this is a point I want to emphasize, because um, those spillovers, some spillovers may not have a kind of human to human element to it, but only an animal to human element to it. Others may occur in very remote 
communities, uh, and there's no data uh, on these spillovers, um, and other zoonotic transfers may have few or no symptoms. And so what um, this group of scientists led by Christine Johnson, what they call for is actually for further help from history. Um, they write for a historical account, or they argue for a historical account uh, of how humans uh, have altered uh, the nature of their contact with animals. Um, and so that means that really historians who can think through uh, the domestication patterns connected to animals um, or human encroachment into biodiverse areas or, for instance, the hunting of wild animals over historical time can actually fill some of this data gap uh, that scientists point to uh, in understandings uh, of zoonotic uh, disease transfer and spillover. And what's really interesting yeah, about there's, there's a distinction there, there isn't there, to be drawn between a kind of natural history of zoonotic disease transfers, which would involve trying to reconstruct, uh, you know, a, a timeline in which you would integrate all all the episodes that you could you could acquire knowledge about. That would be a sort of natural history of zoonotic disease transfer. The human history of the of the experience of zoonotic disease transfer would be a somewhat different thing because one would have to distinguish between the you know diseases which are objectively caused by zoonotic transfers, like for example the bubonic plague, which was which was transferred to humans um, from from rats, in which this uh, disease could become endemic um, by by a particular species of flea, and only later from humans to humans by the human louse or a particular species or several particular species of human lice and then um, in some instances in the case of pneumonic plague from human to human through through aerosols through droplet transmission but um, what's interesting there is that you know throughout the middle ages um, there was no awareness of this zoonotic the zoonotic dimension of this disease um, yeah, yeah i mean i think recent work um, for instance christos linteris is very good work uh, he's a medical anthropologist uh, who recently published framing animals as epidemic villains. I mean, what he highlights is that an awareness of zoonotic transfer occurred in the late 19th century with uh, the bacteriological breakthroughs of yeah. that era. Um, so for instance, rats became known in scientific terms as spreaders of plague, he argues for the first time, or, or mosquitoes uh, as carriers of malaria. And actually the expansion of veterinary medicine then also in that period gave way to a sort of medicalization of animals uh, as carriers of disease. So it's actually kind of only in the last hundred and a bit years uh, that animals have been cast in this role um, as part of the transmission uh, of disease. I mean, on your point of um, animal to human being different to human to human, I half agree because I think that certainly there are different features to human to human transfer. But I think the kind of point I would make is that the history of each of those steps needs to be put together because we too often actually either work on the human side of it or the natural historical side of it. And the kind of history that I'd like to see is much more kind of integrated view of the human and the animal and actually the, the, the transfers back again um, to animals as well. Uh, from Absolutely. And, and that's interesting. Yeah. what you say also puts in, in mind of the um, of the distinction we make, a moralizing distinction we make between human to human transmissions and human to animal transmissions or animal to human transmissions in the sense that um, the, the, the suggestion is often made um, implicitly in the media rather than explicitly, but often by individuals in, in just in, in public discourse, that, that, that when animals transfer diseases to humans, it's often because humans have done something illicit or uh, unnatural. They've been eating animals they shouldn't have eaten. 
for example. That, hence the, the, the very moralizing focus on certain markets uh, in China or um, the, you know, the, the, the notion that one shouldn't be eating um, civets or snakes or um, bats or whatever. Whereas, of course, as we know, um, the human, the, the menus which humans, um, you know, the, the, the foods that humans consume, the animals humans consume vary enormously uh, culturally and historically across time and space. Um, China has been, for obvious reasons, is at the center of attention um, in the context of the current um, pandemic. Why is zoonotic disease spillover? Um, what, what, what is it about the Chinese context that accounts for the fact that, that, this, that this kind of spillover occurred uh, in China as opposed to somewhere else? Uh, yes, that's a really good question. So I'm not a Chinese historian, but I've been reading um, uh, something, um, um, some material on it. I mean, the first point I'd want to make is that, in fact, human engagements with animals are not culturally particular. Um, or should not be simply read as cult culturally particular. And there's a danger of this for the precise reason that you just stated of a kind of rationalization uh, of uh, Chinese engagement uh, with wildlife. However, um, there is um, something to kind of highlight here, which is that um, scholarship has shown that Chinese cosmology uh, traditionally uh, did not divide humans and animals. So this is apparent, for instance, in exciting work by Dagmar, Dagmar Schaffer, uh, Martina Siebert and Roald Stokes from the University of Cambridge uh, in their recent book, Knowing Animals uh, in China's History, where they, they say that Han, Tang, Song, Ming um, commentaries, uh, for instance, really bring animals, the heavens and people all together uh, in the same system uh, and that humans only um, differ by degree. Um, humans also use animals as sort of symbols of political and spiritual force uh, in East Asia. So that's perhaps the first episode. Then when we move into the late early modern period, uh, we have this story of um, a kind of cosmological understanding of humans and animals in the same system, shifting due to environmental events, due to migration and settlement, due to the commercialization of agriculture, and so we get more conflicts between humans and animals. And this is evident, for instance, in the work of Christopher Coggins on tigers and humans in conflict uh, in China. What he argues for is that the settlement of Westerners, uh, the arrival of Christian views of nature, and also really rampant hunting of the kind we see in other colonized territories in Asia, that this dislodged this earlier classical view uh, of the coexistence uh, of humans. Uh, That's very interesting. That's and then you go to the CCP period as well, but yes. But, but don't, don't you think that, you know, humans, th this divide that humans, some humans have created between the human universe and the, and the, and the rest, the physical animal universe, um, that this um, divide has also been applied with tremendously destructive effects by humans to other humans. Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I was just going to move into the Chinese Communist uh, Party era after 1949, and that's certainly um, evident uh, in, in that period, because what you get is a sort of modeling of nature, then having consequences for the modeling of society um, uh, directly. So conquering nature uh, is part of a mass political mobilization, um, often accompanied by military imagery. So, you know, you go, go for, you, you go to war against flood or you go to war against drought uh, and you get Mao's use of that Chinese parable, uh, the foolish old man who removed the mountains, just indicating that concerted manual labor uh, can achieve anything. 
Uh, and so that there's a sort of transference uh, across um, an organization of nature and an organization of, of society in that. So just moving across those episodes, I think the reason why uh, we have um, COVID-19 uh, in China at the minute is because we have this menu of alternatives, really, uh, a menu of alternatives where you have the sanctity and mystery of wild animals and the classical tradition, but you also have the kind of rampant Western hunting. Um, and then you have uh, sort of dramatic interventionism uh, of CCP era China. Uh, and so that's, that becomes a menu given the rise of a kind of consumerist culture around wildlife uh, in recent decades in East Asia, uh, as well as elsewhere. So you're saying there's a kind of overlayering of a modern sort of disenchanted um, exploitative um, relationship with, with the natural environment that overlayers a traditional relationship with, um, with the animal world, which is, which is also culturally distinctive. No, absolutely. I mean, that's my reading of the Chinese historiography, and that would be the way I, I teach it when I teach environmental history, uh, for instance, in our faculty, uh, too. But as I said earlier, uh, I don't want to sort of um, distinguish uh, the Chinese story uh, from others, because, uh, in fact, the collection of animal parts is something uh, that was shared. I mean, early modern Europeans uh, did that as well. And that's one of the things that I've been researching recently as I reflect on uh, the prehistory uh, of COVID-19. Absolutely. I mean, anywhere um, one goes in where there are still, where we can still find in the, in Germany, for example, these 18th century Wunderkabinette, these cabinets of curiosities, which are full of, you know, the sort of zygotic, um, the, the pickled zygotes of, of lizards and Komodo dragons and, and you name it, and the collecting of bits and pieces of, of animals is absolutely part of the Western uh, Western culture as well, um, and of course our modern natural natural history museums are testimony to that as well. Um, a number of different animals have been in the frame um, in the, in recent discussions of the of the COVID nineteen crisis. Um, the, the civet cat, the horseshoe bat, um, and more recently the pangolin, an animal which hasn't um, loomed very large in our um, awareness. Um, what do you make of that? Um, you know. What, why, why are these animals so important? Why, why is the pangolin, an animal which is, you know, the, the, the little I know about it, suggests that it's an animal that really avoids whenever it can contact with human beings. Um, it's famous for rolling itself up into a hard leathery ball. Um, it doesn't seek our company. Um, why is the pangolin suddenly um, part of our discussion of this disease? Yeah, so uh, as I've just uh, told you earlier, Chris, as well, I have been uh, reading up on the pangolin because um, I've just been intrigued by the creature. And I think I sort of began with the realisation that I didn't know enough about pangolins uh, when pangolins suddenly kind of popped up as one of the possible intermediate hosts uh, for SARS-CoV-2. Um, and so I started looking at the history of uh, the human-pangolin relationship. And I think my kind of sense of interest and lack of knowledge is very much in keeping with the long history uh, of the human and the pangolin. But before I kind of say more about what I found, I should just highlight that um, the role of the historian isn't to kind of pronounce on whether the pangolin is or isn't uh, the intermediate host. Um, and in fact, um, the latest reports suggest that we may never know um, which creature was the intermediate host uh, which passed uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, to humans. I mean, it might have been the civet cat, it might have been a snake, it might have been a turtle, uh, for instance. What we do know is that the virus originated from horseshoe bats, um, and the scientists have demonstrated that 96.2% of the genome of the virus is shared 
uh, with coronavirus uh, in horseshoe bats. But they've also been studying um, uh, viruses found in pangolins. Um, and there, something very interesting happened because certainly uh, the papers have been reported uh, as suggesting that the pangolins may not have passed on uh, the virus, but still there's uncertainty around whether the pangolin might have done so. And it all kind of um, rests um, at the end of this paper in Medical Virology published by X. Lee uh, of uh, the Hubei Engineering Research Center in Wuhan on what a pangolin is, right? Um, can you take virus samples from pangolins which are Malayan and then compare those samples to coronavirus samples from humans um, and then determine that the pangolin was not an intermediate host or not? When the pangolin itself is, a, I mean, there are different species of pangolin, um, and there's sort of, uh, uh, there has been taxonomic confusion surrounding the pangolin through time, historically. Um, one scientist uh, refers to it as a chaotic taxonomic history, and that's something I'd kind of totally agree on, uh, having read up on it. So I think the historian's role here isn't necessarily to sort of find the culprit um, for the chain of virus transmission, rather it is to actually kind of open more philosophical questions about the nature of categorization, really, how humans have engaged with nature, how they've tried to classify, how they haven't classified, and how creatures who roll up in balls, as you say, uh, have actually evaded human contact at times, this is, this evaded is, human knowledge. Well, this is, I'm glad you brought this up because the, um, you know, you sent me a working paper that you, you've written, a fascinating working paper in which you explore this relationship between human beings and pangolins. And one of the things that emerges from this paper is that um, humans see in pangolins more than just an animal. There's a there's a sort of um, a, a cultural or spiritual nimbus around these creatures. Um, what is that aura that pangolins have possessed for some groups of humans at some times? Uh, yes, yeah, so there is this taxonomic confusion, um, and early modern Europeans um, wanted to collect pangolins. I mean, that's the first thing uh, that I should say. Um, but as the doctoral work um, of Natalie Lawrence at the University of Cambridge uh, has demonstrated, they actually assembled these pangolin specimens out of what she calls ambiguous parts. And I was really struck by how uh, a Dutch Amsterdam apothecary, uh, Alberta Sieber, for instance, was sent a pangolin specimen in Arak, which is this alcohol which I've drunk in Sri Lanka, which you can still drink, which is made out of coconut. Um, and so it was really difficult to transport bits of pangolin. Um, and then these naturalists just had to kind of assemble uh, this creature, this mysterious creature, the pangolin, and try to figure out where it actually fitted. Was it actually a fish? Was it a lizard? Was it a snake? Um, one uh, Dutch uh, naturalist uh, in 1596 called it a fish of most wonderful and strange form. And this, this, it's scales, isn't it? It has scales, leathery scales, is that right? No, that's right. And so a language of manufacture uh, and instrumentation came to be used uh, in describing it. And this same uh, naturalist said that it's covered in scales and thumbs uh, a thumbs breadth, harder than iron or steel and very hard uh, to prize open. Any instrument uh, could not be used uh, to prize it open by force. Um, so certain kind of, um, certainly a sort of way in which this creature is evading human contact, but then also evading human knowledge because it just can't be classified. And that's the same problem that we see in the scientific papers that are coming out um, over the last few weeks. There's a difficulty in kind of understanding what a pangolin is and how it kind of fits in relation to natural order. And so it's a kind of creature who troubles uh, the boundaries. Uh, and I would argue that actually 
a historian who kind of tracks that can then kind of speak to the present dilemma. Because if it's not a pangolin, it's going to be, you know, a snake or a bat or some other creature like this, uh, whose history is actually quite different to tracking the history of an elephant or a tiger or a something or a horse or something like this, which historians have done. Because those are more domesticated and well-known creatures who um, at times occupy the kind of star position in zoos uh, and wildlife propaganda. But these other creatures who um, are generating these zoonotic spillovers uh, are, you know, nocturnal like the pangolin uh, and very hard uh, to keep uh, in captivity uh, as the 19th century uh, historical record demonstrates. And for that reason, they, they, it's, it's, it's plausible that they carry pathogens that, um, that may, may not even be harmful to the, to the creatures themselves, but um, in, in, in relation to which we are epidemiologically naive, we're, we're exposed, we're, we're not immune, we have no... No, absolutely, because the trade in, in pangolin parts has increased exponentially. So if... Oh, why is that? Why, that? That was an interesting point you made in your paper, why, that the relationship with the pangolin has changed. It's become part of a process of consumption, and, and, uh, which, which is new. What, what has happened? There. Well, I think, I mean, that again goes back to the Chinese history, which I was um, talking about a minute ago, and what you quite rightly identified as this kind of layering effect, um, and what I described as a sort of menu of alternatives. It is possible for more people in China uh, to consume um, pangolin parts. Now, it's a global trade, and the trade has involved, um, as some uh, recent scholars have pointed out, 50 countries or so in the last 10 years, um, and it's not simply Chinese. And at a certain point in the 20th century, um, pangolin skins were really important for leather products uh, in America and Mexico as well. And certainly pangolin meat is consumed uh, in uh, in sub-Saharan Africa too. Um, so we should see it as global, but there is a sort of um, acceleration of the consumption uh, of the pangolin uh, in China, which has meant that this long-standing, unstable relationship of interest, of identification, of taxonomic confusion, of an inability to, to kind of keep a, a pangolin or to breed pangolins uh, in captivity, has now sort of shifted into something dramatically different, where the pangolin has very little room to maneuver uh, and where pangolin populations are declining very dramatically as they're being consumed uh, in China in particular. And they're being consumed because they still possess something of this aura that they uh, also had for um, the, the human groups with whom they came mm -hmm. into yeah. contact. They seem to uh, be an aphrodisiac. Uh, they are kind of presented as a, a, a kind of mythic, and there's a kind of cultural kind of attachment to this idea of consuming the wild, uh, which is driving uh, the eating of pangolin fetuses at times, uh, tongues, uh, and other parts uh, in various parts of China, uh, and which arguably then uh, brings us uh, to, to the markets uh, of China, which have been in prime view uh, in recent coverage uh, of COVID-19. Is it possible, do you think, I mean, you, you a, a while ago, intriguingly, a moment ago in our conversation, you spoke of an animal and used the, used the, um, the relative pronoun who, uh, the, the one we use for humans, for people, um, as if you don't want to make that kind of distinction between, um, between the who's and the witches, the things and the, the people, um, animals and humans. Um, do you think it's possible to recover the agency of an animal? Um, 
Uh, yeah, that's 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 the big question. And um, as I wrote the paper, which I sent to you, Chris, I was sort of alternate. Uh, I was alternatively using it and and who and tried to sort of actually kind of create uh, a subject position um, for the pangolin uh, in the claims that I was making. And it's kind of hard to write like that. I mean, just to think practically about writing art history like this, it's actually very difficult to do. Uh, my own view on agency is um, is that there's a kind of complex that we need to recover. It's not, and this goes back to something I said earlier about different kinds of diseases as well. It's not simply animal agency or absolute animal agency uh, that I would try to recover, uh, but rather the complex of the human and the animal uh, mm. in a kind of engagement, in a kind of face-off, if you will, um, and and different bits of pangolins, uh, pangolin parts. Um, being consumed by humans and different human populations and so on. So it's not even just the human and the animal. It's actually kind of different subsections of that uh, in turn. And if we think about viruses, we've got to go to a different level, a different scale altogether in, in terms of thinking about kind of how uh, humans and animals are collections of, of living forms uh, of a variety of kinds. And so we need uh, a kind of history that certainly uses a language of agency, but which doesn't simplify that language of agency, either by asserting, you know, animals have agency full stop, or, you know, humans have agency alone and humans are the only subjects. Rather, we need to sort of complicate uh, the boundaries uh, around this concept uh, of agency. Uh, and this is particularly evident to me in looking at the South Asian records uh, connected to pangolins uh, over the last few uh, days, uh, in fact, because um, constantly, you know, the pangolin strikes back in certain ways. It's a sort of hilarious sort of moment, for instance, when there's this wildlife photographer uh, and forester conservationist, F.W. Champion, who in 1934 writes uh, The Jungle in Sunlight and Shadow and publishes these really incredible photographs, hyperreal photographs of pangolins with the assistance of two Indians, Mahendra Singh and Karim Baksh. Um, and he, um, I mean, this is a sort of moment of settlement colonization, of course, um, and uh, he tries to keep pangolins uh, in captivity, um, but um, he, he discovers that one of them, you know, attacks his bathroom. Um, another he his has um, in a, a, a cage, uh, and he sits on this uh, pangolin uh, in a cage, and the pangolin attacks his rear end. So if you read stories like that, <laughs> um, you, it really kind of it makes you stop because it kind of makes you think that in fact this attempt at domestication, colonization, if you want, of animals, um, in this particular case, isn't really working. Uh, the pangolin uh, is coming back. But it's in that kind of, in that complex of the human trying to kind of create a structure of settlement, whilst at the same time being committed to natural study and conservation that we see uh, the agency working um, in turn. It's very interesting what you say about agency, because I think in a way, agency is the reason why we find it so difficult or our, our addiction to a particular idea of what agency is is the reason why we find it so difficult to integrate you know what we call natural phenomena um, involving animals changes in the weather um, tsunamis earthquakes and so on into uh, human history because our our narratives are so centered on on a particular idea of human agency that they they simply can't digest these 
these non-agent driven processes or that's the way it's seen in any case and so if we if we say that if we you know impart a, 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 a admittedly it's a different kind of agency because it doesn't involve presumably the formation as a sort of mens rea it doesn't involve the forming of, a, of an intention and, the, and a plan to carry out uh, to, to achieve a particular purpose but um, it involves other forms of active dynamic interaction with um, both with the the rest of the natural environment and particularly with its with its human inhabitants, so that's extremely interesting, Sujit. Do you think that uh, an historiography and a form of historical writing that puts animals at the center or closer to the center will it be a, a very different kind of writing? And is that the sort of historical writing that should 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 come to the forefront after the pandemic? Is that what you're suggesting? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think historians need to write the prehistory of COVID nineteen, as I call it. Um, and uh, that means that they have a much larger role uh, in um, scholarship going forward after the pandemic. Um, so my own work, I mean, on animals has changed dramatically over the last 15 years as I think about it. Uh, and I was thinking about it in preparing for this podcast. I mean, 15 years ago, I wrote on elephants uh, in the historical journal. Um, and there, um, it was a very kind of anthrop anthropomorphic kind of view of elephants because I was trying to figure out how knowledge about elephants moved between humans, moved between South Asians uh, and Europeans, and how the elephant almost became emblematic of India uh, in London and in London zoos, um, and how humans in turn projected caste or gender or race onto the animal. Um, and so this was, you know, a human human history uh, of the animal, uh, if you will. There were moments in the article where humans did have agency. So there was this elephant who was shot dead on the streets of London, um, going mad uh, in captivity and allegedly kind of almost about to go on rampage. But really, it was a human to human history uh, of the animal. And then more recently, I sort of moved in the last five years uh, to thinking about a more materialist view where, you know, collections of, say, animal skulls and human skulls were brought together or how the breeding of captive animals went side by side with ethnological work, just to make the point that actually it's not simply about the human looking at the animal, but rather that in the, the work of human thought or in the practice of collection, the boundaries of the animal and the human are constantly disturbed. And from that, one gets new ideas, race, or new subjectivities of the human, or, or new modes of, of classification. So this is a kind of very different animal history to the one I did 15 years ago. And now in the midst of this pandemic, I think uh, we need to kind of move further. We need to think about the viruses. We need to think um, of the scale kind of down from the animal, if you will, um, and really think about the different collectives uh, that need to figure uh, in the histories uh, that we write. Um, another reflection I have since you ask about the future of historiography is that I've really enjoyed reading the science papers um, that have come out um, over the last few weeks yeah, um, they <laughs> on the pandemic. And I think historians should read them and can bring insights to them. So just on the point of, you know, is it a pangolin or not? We can say, well, what is a pangolin anyway? And how in historical time has a pangolin come to be? It's that sort of philosophical and theoretical question that historians can ask uh, in this debate uh, about disease transmission. I mean, traditionally, I've been quite skeptical uh, of the sciences because I was trained as a historian of science and I was it was drilled into me that science is socially constructed, um, that its theories, uh, that its professional organization, that its solutions are always linked to specific values, belief systems, and politics uh, and so on. But I think we need to be really careful about dismissing the science papers outright, um, especially at our present moment 
because nationalist and populist politicians also dismiss the science. Um, so I think we need to kind of engage more openly and yet critically, and also, as I suggest, more philosophically uh, with the science papers coming out at the moment in order to kind of sketch a very different kind of history, which certainly is environmental, which is centered on non-humans and humans, animals and humans, and which is asking you know, fundamental questions uh, about how we came um, to this particular juncture uh, in world history. Well, we're coming to uh, the end of our time, and I think it's a, it's a good moment to end because we have some advice for all our um, fellow historians. Read the science papers. And um, we've learned, among other things, among many other things from this conversation, how divertingly and at what length one can converse on the subject of the pangolin without even beginning to exhaust its interest. So, Sujit Sivasandram, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation and uh, being part of the history of now. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. 